I, uh, we're going to conclude our very brief four-week series on the kind of questions of worship, and we've, we've looked at uh, how we worship, who we worship, why we worship. We're looking this morning at when we worship, and uh, I fully recognize I have I have way too much material, but um, that's I still try to pace uh, myself and ourselves. And uh, do the best I can, and I'm not expecting necessarily to, or really not expecting to cover everything I have in my notes, but uh, at least want to get the high points, certainly of the things that I've included in the handout. So let's uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for your your loving kindness toward us, who are undeserving, but we thank you that we may worship you on this day, the day that you have made, and the day that you have sanctified. And we ask, Lord, now that you would teach us about worship, and as we look into your word and, and the practice and tradition of the church, your, uh, the body of Christ, we pray that you would instruct us in all wisdom, for Christ has become for us wisdom from God, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, one good place to, to open is the Westminster Confession of Faith. We'll use that as a sort of a foundation and a launching pad, uh, being a confessional and, and constitutional document of our church and our denomination. You can look in the back of the hymnals. Does anyone have a page number for, if you get there, Westminster Confession of Faith? Oh, I didn't even write the chapter down. Is it 21? 21? 21.6? 21.7? So I'm going to start a Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21. Uh... Six, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. 21.7 As it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. 8. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So uh, that, that's our starting point, and we want to expound on that and, and ask some questions and speak more uh, specifically about uh, when we worship in light of what our confession says. And uh, not just because our confession says it, but because we believe the confession is a faithful summary of the system of doctrine taught in Scripture. 
So we ought to distinguish among different types of worship. We just read that in in point six or paragraph six. There is an implicit distinction among corporate, family, and secret worship. The corporate worship is what we do on Sundays as uh, God's people assemble to worship him according to his word. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, there are extenuating circumstances, but generally speaking, worship is led by an ordained minister uh, who represents God to the people and leads the people in responding to God. We talked a little about the dialogical principle last week, and uh, that is the, the, the back and forth that there is built into the order of worship, and that's why we have the headings in our bulletin that try to lead us and instruct us. They kind of provide a, a blueprint or a roadmap for us as we worship. God speaks to us. How does it begin? Well, typically we say the actual worship service Uh, regulated by the regulative principle of worship and strictly by Scripture alone, begins when God greets us. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God speaking through his representative, in this case being me as a minister of the gospel. I don't have any special powers uh, or any special ability or worth or value, but The Lord has called me to his service, and part of my calling is to represent Christ and and God to the people in that function. And so that's not me greeting you. That's what I do before we even start that. That's why I say welcome to Hope Presbyterian Church. That's me speaking. And then I'm speaking merely as an ambassador or as a herald of God when he greets you. And that's why I raise my hands. And that's why uh, people who aren't ordained ministers uh, are not at least according to the OPC directory for public worship, are not supposed to raise their hands and do not generally, are not really supposed to offer an apostolic greeting. That's for another day. But that's the reason we do that. And how do we respond? We respond to God's call. We read portion of scripture. Then we also sing. We sing to God. But then it goes back and forth where he speaks to us in his word. There's a, and he, he, there's a reading of the law and he can, convicts us of our sin. We go to him in prayer asking for forgiveness. He speaks to us uh, through uh, the assurance of pardon. You know, we go to him and singing again. He speaks to us in his word. Me as a representative of Christ, I speak and preach and proclaim the word of God to the people and to myself. And then we respond in prayer, in song. You see how it goes back and forth? Uh, So that's the activity when we worship. This all occurs in corporate worship. But corporate worship is not the only type of worship mentioned in Scripture or in our confession. Uh, because, uh, you know, there, for those of you who are married, uh, and certainly if you have children, then I would also urge you and, and encourage you to consider family worship, where you gather together as a family regularly, as the confession says, preferably daily, where you would read Scripture, where you would pray together, where you would even sing praises unto uh, our God. Uh, and that is going to look different for different families. But ideally, uh, in most circumstances, it would be the the head of the house or the father uh, with his particular role within the marriage and uh, his particular responsibilities that God gives to him. He would lead that and carry on that responsibility. It it can be a great challenge, uh, and and it can be very difficult, especially when you have a wide range of ages in, in in your household, to do this in a way that's effective. It's a great discipline. It takes a lot of reps uh, to try to get to a place where you feel like you're making any progress and not just trying to keep the kids from punching each other or something. You know? uh, but it's going to look different for different families. Uh, but it's, it's an important part of Christian life that we would worship the Lord 
not just corporately on the Lord's Day, but also as families. But then also there is secret worship. Uh, in secret worship, it's when you as, a, as an individual go privately to the Lord in prayer, in the reading of Scripture. You're certainly uh, encouraged to, to sing praises to the Lord by yourself if, if you so, uh, feel so inclined. Um, and so when we're speaking of all these different kinds of worship, uh, we, we ought to consider that we would participate in family and in secret worship daily. Perhaps even if you have the, the, the opportunity and you can develop the, uh, the strength and the desire that you would do so multiple times per day. That's, that's a good thing to do. But we're not talking about all that this morning. I wanted to focus in, because we can't talk about everything in 40 minutes. Uh, we're at 33 minutes now. But we can focus in on uh, specifically on corporate worship. So when we ask the bigger question, when do we worship? Well, every day, ideally, always, but you take out special moments where you would worship privately or you would worship as a family. But what I'm speaking of in this lesson is that when do we worship? We worship on the Lord's Day as the body of Christ assembled together to worship the Lord. That's the, I narrowed the question <laughs> to focus in on some important things. So when specifically then do we engage in corporate worship? Well, every week we engage in corporate worship on Sunday. And the question is, why? Well, the people of God did not always uh, worship the Lord on Sunday. Uh, from the creation of the world uh, to the resurrection of Christ, they worshiped on Saturday. And you'll see I've, I've written out a sketch of some arguments that Danny Hyde uh, writes in his book, Welcome to a Reformed Church. So these are paraphrased or you know, summarized points from his chapter there. But when God created all things, he rested on the seventh day. And as we are created in the image of God, we are called to live godly lives. And by that I mean lives that reflect his activity and his character. And so we too are supposed to live out a life of period of six days work and one day rest. And that's exactly what the commandment says, the fourth commandment. Uh, you should work six days, thou shalt work and do all your labor. But on the seventh you rest. And so God created the world that way. Even before the fall into sin, there was still this pattern of work and rest. There's even a little pattern of work and rest within each day. Uh, pretty much a third of your entire life is devoted to one activity. Do you know what that is? Sleeping. You ever thought about the theological significance of the fact that a third of your life is basically spent unconscious and in slumber? I know mean, you know, I understand the complexity. Well, I don't understand them all, but I realize there's great psychological complexities to what your brain is doing while you're asleep. But generally speaking, a third of your life is spent laying down and out. <laughs> That's a profound thing to think about. Oh, well, God built into our lives a need of, of rest, but also a need of work. I'm reminded of a story of uh, John Murray, who was a longtime professor of systematic theology at Westminster in Philadelphia. And he, when he became the chair or the dean of faculty, that means he's the working boss of the faculty, and then he decided when the faculty meetings would occur, and he would call the time that was of his prerogative to do so. So we always scheduled them for Saturday mornings. And so maybe some of the other faculty didn't really like that. They would have preferred to have a business meeting on a different day. But he said, six days thou shalt work, and the seventh he rest. So he always worked. He called the people into work on Saturday on purpose. 
because of his view. Sometimes we forget the positive aspect of that commandment, do we not? We hear the one day of rest and, and worship, but we don't also think that we're commanded to work. We don't get into all that in too much detail, but I want you to see that this is built into the very fabric of creation, and that continues. Uh, and then after God brought his people out of Egypt, the Sabbath goes on further to signify that God has then redeemed his people out of Egypt. He's redeemed them. He's saved them. And so the Sabbath <coughs> doesn't cease in its prior significance, but now there is further significance attached to it, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. But then we also find in the, in the Mosaic administration that significant days of worship, including the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, they were on the Sabbath. And we see that in Leviticus 16. So there are many examples of people worshiping on Saturday, uh, the seventh day of the week. However, when Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, what we know as Sunday, he changed the eschatological significance of the days of the week. It's a fancy way to say he has brought new and lasting and final significance to Sunday uh, in a way that's quite different now from Saturday. Because we understand Christ as the second and the last Adam, and we understand that Jesus now is a representative of a new covenant and that he has come and completed the work that was laid out before Adam, but Adam failed to achieve and to accomplish it. Adam fell into sin, and, and we all were condemned with him. But Jesus Christ now enters in, and he's the second and the last Adam, and he succeeds at every point where Adam failed. And Jesus is raised from the dead, whereas Adam was condemned to death, and now Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday. And so under the new covenant, a new administration, not a, a new substance, but because the substance even of the old covenant was always Christ, but now under the new covenant and the new administration, we worship on the first day of the week rather than the last day of the week. Why? Because Christ has finished his work. And so we do not look forward to the coming of Christ and look forward to our rest to come, therefore taking our rest at the end of the week to signify that we have not entered into the rest at all yet, really. But we look back upon the finished work of Christ and honor the, the resurrection on the Lord's day also, in a way, by us taking our rest the first day of the week because we rest upon the finished work of Jesus. Now, that's a foretaste of our heavenly rest. Now, we realize we haven't entered finally into our eternal rest. That is to come when our Lord returns. But the changing of the week, as it were, is to demonstrate the significance of what Jesus has done. And so just as on the first day also, uh, the first day of creation, God made light and separated it from the darkness... We gather on the first day of the week to celebrate the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has separated us from the world of the darkness of sin. And uh, if that isn't enough of a theological reason to alter or to shift our, our observation of the Sabbath to the first day rather than the seventh, uh, this was also the overwhelming uh, testimony of the ancient church. Uh, Christians worshipped on Sunday. And uh, it's the practice even spoken of in Scripture where the day is called the Lord's Day. Uh, John speaks about that being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. There's also reference to this phrase in 1 Corinthians 16.2. So uh, that's a significant point. I got into a, I wouldn't say a debate, but I got into a conversation about that uh, with some friends of mine uh, over email. We were talking about the Lord's Day. And uh, it was suggested by one of my friends that perhaps John's use of the phrase, the Lord's Day, 
was a way to speak about the day of the Lord, which is that prophetic phrase that we find throughout the Old Testament. Where on the day of the Lord, it talks about His coming and His and His coming in wrath. And so this was suggested, well, maybe he's not speaking specifically about worshiping on Sunday, but he's talking about being in the Spirit uh, in, in terms of the Lord coming in that eschatological day. Well, my good friend Glenn Clary uh, had some thoughts about that. And uh, he says um, the following. I'll just read you his email. While I do think that the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10 has an eschatological tone, I still think it refers to Sunday. Of course, Sunday has been eschatologized, there's a word for you, by Christ's resurrection, so it's linked to the consummation. But one thing to consider with regard to Revelation 1.10 is the widespread use of the term Lord's Day in ancient Christian literature to refer to Sunday, including the earliest uh, documents we have, for example, the Didache. So he's saying, well, John's specific phrase is used by the ancient church who knew John and were taught by John, as well as many of the other apostles. They use that same phrase to talk about worshiping on Sunday. So that gives us some context about what John means, perhaps, in, in the book of Revelation. But more, more. The Greek phrase in Revelation 1.10 is actually different from the customary Greek phrase for the day of the Lord. It's not the phrase used in the Septuagint for the prophetic day of the Lord. And Glenn says, if I recall correctly, the phrase is actually never used in the Septuagint. The phrase that John uses is not used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the one that the apostles and prophets and Jesus himself used at times. So one question would be that if John intended to speak of the day of the Lord, as in the prophetic day, why didn't he use the standard phrase that they would have all used in their Bibles? Why use a phrase his readers would not be familiar with? Uh, which is a good question. So the suggestion there, and I think it's rather compelling, is that when John is speaking about being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he's speaking about worshiping on Sunday, which is another example of how Christ's resurrection has changed the pattern of, of our worship throughout the week. So if you have any further questions on, on that specific point, why worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? I don't think it's generally a debated point among Christians, uh, unless you you know grew up maybe Seventh Day Adventist. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean it, it doesn't seem to be a very contentious issue. However, we want to ask some more points, not just when do we worship Sundays. Let's go home. <laughs> We're done. But here's about what about this? What time? Or here's another question for you: How often? All right. Now we're getting into some some tougher questions. What time do we worship? Well, 9.30 and 6 p.m. Thus saith the Lord. No, <laughs> thus, say, thus not saith the Lord. Um, but uh, that's the point. See, we abide by what we call the regulative principle of worship. And that's not just something that Reformed people invented so that we can have some policy to hide behind. But uh, the regulative principle of worship is an extension of our belief that God has spoken Scripture, and that's our ultimate authority. So... We believe in, in what we call sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture is our ultimate authority. We do not stand upon scripture and tradition or the interpretation of men, but the Bible alone is our foundation because the Bible is the very word of God breathed out and inscripturated. So as a congregation and as the officers of this church are called to lead and guide the people, what is our standard? Only the word of God. Now, we, that, that means we cannot 
command or require people to do things that the word does not command or require. Correct? And that's what we say in, in uh, that's, that's the sixth membership vow <laughs> or question. There are only five, by the way, where the fifth talks about submitting to uh, the governance of this church, submitting in the Lord, even in which case you should be found delinquent. But we, we jokingly, but not always jokingly, ask a sixth question, does that mean you have to do whatever we say? And the answer of that to that is, of course, no. But how do you know? Well, it's according to the Word. So, that's why we have a regulative principle of worship, so that we only do that which is commanded in Scripture and nothing else. Because if we as a, as a session were calling the people to participate in things that were not commanded by Scripture, then we would be binding people's conscience with something that was not spoken by the Lord. Uh, I've got examples of this, other worship services that I've been to where I felt my conscience was bound, that we were called to do things that were not according to the Word. I, c- I can save those for you, but we don't have a whole lot of time. But I want you to understand that the things that are in the bulletin and the things that we call people to do, when there's a call to worship, and everything between the call to worship and the benediction, we are seeking to submit exclusively to the Word of the Lord so that we can say, you must, people of God, respond out of God's call. Raise up and participate. But we will never, ever seek to to command you or lead you to do that which God does not require. That's what the regulative principle is. So, does God say, thou shalt worship at 9.30 a.m. Central Standard Time? No. How do we understand that then? (coughs) God does say we should worship on Sunday. That the, the whole day is sanctified. But when we understand... Uh, the regulative principle, we need to understand that there are elements of worship, forms of worship, and circumstances of worship. The elements of worship, for simplicity's sake, are generally the things you see printed in the bulletin. Call to worship, offering, preaching of God's word, uh, reading of God's word, prayer. All of these things are elements of worship. Those are the things that are commanded uh, for us to do, and those are things we must do. We can't have a a rightful, true worship service without the preaching of God's Word. It's not a worship service. So we can't have one without prayer. So we're called and commanded to do those things. But how does that look? Well, there can be forms. You have elements of worship, but then there are the forms. And those forms can look different, service to service or church to church. We choose to to read psalms in the evening service, and we do that through a, a responsive reading. That is a type of a form. Are we required always and everywhere to have responsive Psalter readings? No, we don't do them in the morning service. Uh, We have a responsive call to worship, um, but we don't have a responsive Psalter reading. And when I started here, we didn't have a responsive Psalter reading. That's something we added about, you know, eight months after I I began because we thought it would be good. Not, Not because we thought we were... We were sinning by not doing it, but we added it as a, as a session because we thought it would be a good thing to do. So those are forms. Uh, forms are still, you know, um, we need to always have forms that are godly and, and regulated by the word, but those forms can, can look differently. They also need to be regulated by scripture. So, for example, if I was preaching from a, a motivational book rather than the word of God, that would be a terrible uh, violation of, of the proper form of a sermon. 
but should I preach a sermon with three points or two or a narrative type sermon that doesn't have explicitly listed points? Uh, you know, all of these things can, can look differently. Um, and those, those are generally sometimes we call forms of worship. And then finally, there are the circumstances. And this is where I was going with this all along. The time of worship is what we call a circumstance. There are things that attend to the worship service, but we do these as a means of encouraging and building up the people. So the session has, has seen fit, and for years and years we've worshipped at 9.30 a.m., not because we think there's any holy significance to 9.30 as opposed to 10 or 11, but because it, uh, you know it, it, it's kind of a, a godly compromise. Some of you would, uh, I won't name names, but might prefer to worship at 5.30 in the morning, you know, or 6. Other people, that would be, what are you talking about? It's still Saturday, <laughs> you know? Um, and and uh, we worship on Sunday, not Saturday. Um, you know, other people would prefer to, to worship, have the worship service much later at 11. But are these matters of right and wrong? No. Provided the worship service is on the Lord's day, it's not a matter of, of being faithful or not faithful to God's word. But it's a matter of, of the session trying to seek the Lord in wisdom and trying to be faithful shepherds, under shepherds, to care for the flock as best as we can. And so often circumstances are that way. Do we use amplification? Yes, we think it's better. It's more conducive to people hearing and understanding. So amplification of the, of the preacher, that's a circumstance of worship. Do we have lights? Yeah, we have lights. Does God's word say, thou shalt use microphones and lights? No, it doesn't. But these are circumstances of worship that help us how to uh, to, to best worship the Lord and to be most effective and faithful. So the time of worship, the specific time, is a circumstance of worship. But the question, how often, that's starting to get a little bit uh, more theological. Uh, the Directory for Public Worship, which is a constitutional document, it's in our Book of Church Order. All of this is online. I'd be happy to show you. You could go to opc.org and click Standards, and under there is the, the Book of Church Order. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism. It's all there. It's all available. I can hand you a print copy if you'd rather take a look. But the DPW uh, was just revised uh, probably about seven years ago. Um, and it says this. DPW, uh, I forget the chapter. Well, A4B. It is highly advisable that a congregation assemble for public worship at the beginning and ending of the Lord's Day. So there's also a, like, a, like a table of contents that has a code for, it, it explains all of these words, shall, should, everything, and how they're being used, whether or not this means that this is required for an OP church or not. So this is not required that every OPC church, every OP congregation, have a morning and evening service. But it says this is about as strongly as it can without requiring it. It is highly advisable that a congregation assemble for public worship at the beginning and the end of the Lord's Day, Sunday. So that's morning and evening service. God established this pattern for His Old Testament people when He commanded morning and evening sacrifice and incense burning. Moreover, He sanctifies the entire Lord's Day to Himself and gives His people in it a foretaste of their eternal enjoyment of him and his people. So I don't mean or have the time to, to go through a full kind of theological case and defense of the evening service. We could develop that uh, more so in future 
weeks if, if, uh, if, if that would be desired. But being that there was an Old Testament example, and not just a, a suggestion, but a requirement of morning and evening sacrifice and incense burning for the people of God, we believe it's highly advisable uh, that we as a new covenant people would follow that pattern in a new covenant administration type of way. So it's not the same thing. We don't offer sacrifices. Uh, we ought to offer our bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord. And that's our spiritual service. Uh, but at the same time, the pattern of worship for God's people in Israel was to worship specifically in the morning and in the evening. And that serves as a sort of worshipful bookend. Uh, it's the beginning of our day and the end of our day. The entire day then being bookended by the worship of God. Let me ask you this then, what is ordering your day? It's not your calendar. It's not your personal affairs. It's not your meeting with family. It's not your other worldly activities. It's not your work. What should be driving your day on Sunday? Worship and then rest the whole day. That's the sanctification of the whole day. So we don't look at our calendar and see that we have an event scheduled, and then figure out where worship will fit in around the event. That's entirely backwards. But worship drives the day. And that's why I love so much the practice of morning and evening worship. Because it intentionally messes up your opportunity to fit other stuff into the day that you're not supposed to be fitting in there. That's the idea. And so, what are you left? You're like, I'm so bored. What am I going to do? Well, you take up in the practice of worship the whole day and in rest. You say, I can't. I have no energy. Well, my friend said we're such spiritual. Uh, I know this isn't PC. I mean no offense, but this is a word a friend said. We're spiritual midgets. And by that, he just meant we're weak and frail. Especially as modern-day Americans, we think it's not possible to worship all the day. And so we say, well, how are we going to fill up our day? With things, otherwise I'm going to go crazy. Because if I'm just worshiping and resting all day, I'll be bored out of my mind. Well, strive and pray to the Lord that he'll give you strength to do these things. But more than that, fellowship with others. If you're bored out of your mind, have someone over for lunch. <laughs> you know, have them over between the morning and evening service. You know, when, I, when we started doing this, when I moved to Philadelphia, it was, we thought the evening service was superfluous and strange. Well, why do you go to church twice? That seems weird. But in my mind, you know, church was something, yeah, I, I didn't really think this, but I, there, was a, there was a grain of truth. There was an element in my psyche where church was something you checked off rather than you gathering to worship the Lord, Him calling you to, to be present with Him and to worship and serve Him. And why wouldn't you want to do that? To open your day and close your day. You know, it's not just something we get out of the way or make sure we get it in morning and evening whenever it's convenient, but rather something we should do out of a heart that's been transformed by God. You know, it's just weird uh, if we didn't want to serve him and worship him. That has more of a testimony of our sin than it does in terms of our piety and practice. So we want to worship the Lord, and it's advisable and good, highly advisable, that we would assemble as God's people morning and evening well, why? Well, let's look at some of the commandments. I want you to see that worship involves sanctifying the whole day. Um, I won't read the fourth commandment. We read it this morning in the worship service. Uh, but it's, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all the work, all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord thy God. But the larger catechism gets into further detail. 
What is required in the fourth commandment? And this is strong language, and a lot of people bristle at this. And I, I, I readily admit that this is not the testimony of probably the majority of the American church. I think that's a sad thing. But I, I firmly believe that this is what the, the Word of God is leading us in and teaching us. The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word, expressly one whole day and seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. Well, how is the Christian Sabbath, or how is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day to be sanctified? The Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. So they're saying you don't just rest from things that are sinful, but even from things that otherwise uh, would be uh, permissible, but not for the Lord's Day. And making it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. Now, certainly there are times, there are many things that are works of necessity and mercy, you know, where we need to uh, achieve... Uh, and accomplish some things uh, that other people might consider work here or there. You know, when we go to the assisted living center, that's a work of, of mercy, and it's also a work of uh, we're worshiping the Lord as we do that. You know, if, if someone is in great need, you know, it, 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 would we say it's, it's always, uh, someone comes to your house and, and they're really hungry, is it wrong to go to, to go to the store and buy some food? I would say not. You know, these are matters of conscience that you need to grow into and, and things that you need to seek the Lord after. But the point is that we need to arrange our affairs and try to be free and fit on the Lord's Day. So try to do as much as you possibly can in preparation of the Lord's Day so that your day is not filled up with the things of the rest of the week. You know, students, we should not be using our Sunday evenings to finish our homework. That We want to, as best as we can, to complete our work ahead of time so that we come into the Lord's Day and you can actually rest. And you're not spending all of your afternoon cramming for a test you have on Monday. It's also why I think Christian schools, I mean, I don't want to preach on my soapbox, but why I think Christian schools and seminaries shouldn't have quizzes and tests on Mondays. Because it just adds, it's further tempting. Um, And it's not conducive always to a restful time on the Lord's Day. But sometimes we don't have we don't have flexibility or options. But these are things that we need to be prayerful of and to have foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. I'm as guilty as the next person of not doing those things. And it's a challenge. It's a fight. But that's, those, that's part of sanctification. And I know that for a lot of people, these, this language sounds archaic, arcane and crazy. It's not modern, but this, I believe, is more of a testimony of how far we've drifted as a Christian church uh, and, and have been absorbed by the world's practice because the world treats Sunday as a, as a day of, of shopping and commerce. And uh, it's a day that we own. It's a day that we go fishing and a day that we play sports and do whatever we want rather than the day that we do the thing that the Lord has called us to do. 
So I uh, could continue on, but I encourage you to read more of the larger catechism. In my remaining time, I do want to answer two more questions. The first is, can corporate worship only take place on Sunday? And then secondly, did Christ sum up the Sabbath? So first, can corporate worship only take place on Sunday? Anybody have any, any answer to that? No. <laughs> there are times where we may worship corporately on other days. We are commanded always to worship on Sunday. So it's not something that we say, well, we can have a special service on Friday and then let's, let's not worship the Lord on Sunday. That's not what I'm suggesting. But there are times, here we see in the DPW chapter 5, on special occasions of public worship, under the gospel we are commanded to keep no other particular day holy except the Lord's Day. And that includes holidays, which are thought of as holy days, right? Holidays? No, there's no other day that's holy but the Lord's Day. However, nevertheless, God's people may observe special occasions as the dispensations of God's providence administer cause and opportunity. Such observance is both consonant with Scripture and pastorally appropriate. So our, our book talks about, uh, according to the Word, why, how the, the uh, leaders of the congregation may call for special days of prayer and fasting. We may also observe special days of worship, uh, you know, on Christmas or Easter. Uh, you know, Easter is always falling on Sunday anyway, but uh, Christmas moves around. Um, you know, there may be Thanksgiving. We might have a Thanksgiving service. Is it wrong? Absolutely not. Is it required? Absolutely not. But the congregation, may we may seem fit as, as a session to call a special worship service. And we may gather together in freedom, even though that day is not sanctified in the week, to gather together and worship the Lord because of a special occasion out of the joy of our hearts. That's perfectly fine, well, and good. And we desire to do that. And we have done that and desire to do that more and more on into the future. Well, just to conclude, and I know this is kind of a whirlwind tour, and uh, but I do want to answer the question about whether Christ summed up the Sabbath. It has been argued uh, by some in uh, evangelical circles that because of Jesus Christ, his coming, his death and resurrection, now he has accomplished salvation. And so he has put an end uh, to the practice of observing the Sabbath. Now you can gather that I'm going to try to argue against that, given what we've already read in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But it, there, there is a, I think it's deficient, but there is something of a redemptive historical argument for believing that Christ has put an end to observing the Sabbath. So basically, we don't have ten enduring commandments. We have nine commandments, and Christ finished one of them. That's kind of the argument. And that's how often people think. You know, We basically realize that all the commandments are important. I shouldn't murder people or commit adultery or covet or bear false witness. I need to worship the Lord and Him only, not take His name in vain. I need to honor my father and mother, not steal. Did I forget anything? But, but the fourth one, for some reason, is all of a sudden not there anymore. And some people argue it's because of what Christ has done that we don't need to do it anymore. Let me turn you to the book of Hebrews. So let's all turn to the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to read you some uh, extended portions uh, to finish our time. <clears throat> Hebrews 3, I'm going to start at verse 1. <coughs> Hebrews 3, verse 1. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's before Revelation. It's after Matthew. Before James. Does anyone have a page number for... 
1002, thank you. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience." To interpret here, just to put a cap on it, because that's a lot to think about at the moment. He says, the people of God were brought up and redeemed out of Egypt. They were brought through the wilderness on their way to the promised land to enter into Canaan. Moses was disobedient, and all of that generation disobeyed God. They had a root of bitterness that welled up within their hearts. And God punished them and said, you will not enter my rest, meaning you will not cross the river Jordan to enter into Canaan. Joshua was allowed to bring the people in. And he ushered in the people to the promised land. 
But what the author to the epistle of the Hebrews is saying is Joshua did not give them their ultimate rest. This was a type, it was a a, a picture or an image of the final rest to come. And we are the church and we are a pilgrim people. That is, we have been redeemed out of slavery of our sin and are being led through the wilderness now in this present age, being led unto the promised land, which is our eternal heavenly rest. But that is a rest yet to come. We look back upon the finished work of Christ, but yet we strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me connect a dot. Let us not have a root of bitterness in our hearts that strives or kicks against the goads where God is desiring to keep us pointed toward the rest. The Lord's day is meant to keep us focused and driving forward that we would go there straightly. I've got a lot I would like to read, but we don't have time, but I want to skip to Hebrews 12.12. 12.1. Let's start with that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now skipping to verse 12, 12, 12. Again, this is a word of encouragement to pilgrims who have a tendency to waver and wander and uh, to not have their eyes fixed upon the heavenly prize. What does the author here say? I believe this is a sermon here. What What is he preaching? Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So in other words, he's saying, don't wander around. Don't waver going this way or that. And don't work out a spirit of rebellion, a root of bitterness that would cause you to want to go back to your former life. Like the Israelites in the wilderness wanted to go away from the promised land and go back to slavery in Egypt. When we waver, when we are weak, when we waffle, when we are not led by the Lord in His way, that we're doing the same thing that the Israelites did when they wanted to go back to Egypt. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Go that way and that way alone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And goes on and on. And he talks about in 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I'll close in saying this. I'm already over time. But the Lord's Day, sanctifying the Lord's Day and worshiping and serving the Lord, that's not all that the author of Hebrews is saying. Certainly not. But it's a major part of it. And as we sanctify the Lord's Day, as we do not neglect the gathering together of the saints, 
as we gather together with the great cloud of witnesses seeking to encourage one another, that is a countercultural sign. And that's exactly the point. We are called to be different, to be people of faith and not people of dead works. And that's what Hebrews is telling us. It's what Galatians is telling us. It's what Romans is telling us. What Scripture is telling us. And so, by nature, a sign of the covenant and our personal practice as God's people, by definition, will be odd and strange to the world because we've been called out of that unto a different holy life because we're going to a different place. We are pilgrims on our way to our eternal heavenly rest. So I encourage you, as the author of Hebrews does, or the preacher to the Hebrews might say, Strengthen your drooping hands, or lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And let us all encourage one another and live like Christians. That's the point. Let us live like Christians, people that have faith in Christ. And therefore, let us worship who, where, how, and when the Lord has commanded us to do. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your word of encouragement. And Father, as as, a... The author of Hebrews says uh, many hard things, but we pray, Lord, uh, that you would continue to encourage us, that we would speak the truth in love, but that we would always speak the truth, and that we would always speak it in love. Uh, Father, uh, we need to be woken up sometimes, and Father, we waver and we falter, but we're not alone. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit and the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would lay aside every sin and every weight that would entangle us, and that we would run the race with endurance, striving toward that rest. Father, let us move there as individuals, but also let us leave no one behind uh, by the grace of God. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.